Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma samputasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So these handouts, two of them are for chanting, and if you want to join in, you can. Otherwise, um, just use it as another meditation period. Hearing, hearing. The Vipassana interview is, um, these are questions which, uh, slightly worked on that Upandita used to give, Saida Upandita, mainly to stop people telling stories. You know, my dog died and I feel so sad, all that sort of stuff. And this keeps it very clearly in your body, in, uh, in actually what's happening in the present moment in terms of your practice. So <clears throat> one of the things that... Uh, Vipassana isn't, is primarily a psychotherapy. The psychotherapy happens of itself. So from the Vipassana teacher's point of view, what's most important is, does the meditator know what they're doing? Are they using the technique skillfully? And if that's true, that's it. That's the end of my job. It's great. I don't have to do anything more than that. <laughs> All I do then is encourage, keep going, don't stop. Do not turn left, do not turn right. So these questions give you an idea, and they're also there for your own reflection. So when we say reflect at the end of a sitting, sometimes you can use one or two of these, these questions, you see. So, uh, You see, I put at the top there, remember not to confuse a passing interview with counselling or psychotherapy. So it's not that, you know, this is not a sort of judgment on counselling and psychotherapy, this is just telling you it's not counselling and psychotherapy. <laughs> and stories of all sorts are not relevant to the process of seeing, seeing things as they really are, you see. Well, we'll come to that in more detail in a bit. And Vipassana is essentially to get to the root of the cause of our suffering, which is before stories before stories happen, before history happens. So schedule, you see. Are you, are you really keeping to it? What difficulties have you got with it, you know? Are you eating and sleeping? It's important to eat and sleep well, but you don't want to eat very much. And you want to sleep less, see? Now, the first two days, the first two or three days, uh, there's tiredness coming from our daily lives, Right? I think I mentioned it. Everybody on retreat comes with some sort of imbalance of sleep. It's also true for me. It always takes me about two or three days to get into a stride, you know. And um, it takes that long for the sleep pattern to be regularized and to feel rested. So that's why the first day, I keep stressing this business, is relax, you know. Don't try and achieve anything. Don't try. Just, just land. But after two or three days, four days, absolutely maximum, uh, one's sleep has been uh, sorted out. 
if you're sleeping well, that is, yeah? So then after that, any sleepiness, any, anything like that, it must be uh, a very honestly and perhaps brutally named dullness and lethargy. You know, don't, don't give in. So that's uh, sleeping and eating, yeah? Eating less, you see. We're not doing anything. What are you eating for? <laughs> have to eat a little. Uh, the breath, you see. What I, what's interesting, what we want to know is, what are you actually experiencing? I know it sounds such a silly question, but it's important. It's important to know what it is it, what is it that the meditator is actually experiencing when they observe, feel, experience the breath. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> what are they doing, you see? Because many of you will have done other techniques. And if you mix techniques, well, it's... Um, can be a bit of a problem. I remember once I used to do interviews here and I asked the meditator what they were doing in terms of their practice um, as a basic technique. So they said, well, they started here on the nose and then after a while they went down here to the stomach. And then they did a bit of visualization. <laughs> and it was like Butlin's holiday camp. I said, you know what? <laughs> They try the swings and then go over and have a little swim, and then <laughs> it's all very pleasant. See that phrase to to see the beginning, the middle, and the end. You see, the beginning is the exact moment that the breath begins, the in breath and the out breath. The end is the exact moment it stops. The middle bit is the whole lot. It's not as though you're trying to find the middle of your breath. See, that's another. It's not a mistake I sometimes come across. So you're not breathing in, in middle, end. You know, middle. <laughs> no, you're just staying with the process of breathing, up and down. Now, what do you do in the, in the break between the in-breath and the new breath, between the out-breath and, and the new intake, you see? So remember, one stays. Uh, if the mind is very rushed, you've got to give it something to do. So you choose a touch point. But then as you settle, and I'm talking about one sitting, I'm not talking about you know, the retreat, because sometimes you're going very well on the third and fourth day and you've got it really going. And then suddenly the mind goes berserk, see? So when, I'm, you know, when we say don't do the touch point, it's at the point where you feel steady enough to stay where the breath is and there are no sensations or very, very fine sensations. And the mind doesn't wander. So you're always there, right where the breath is. See? If you find yourself getting tight around the breath, a lot of, remember the breath and the emotions are very close. So often we're, we're holding things in the breath. One obvious one is when people are breathing in the chest. Their stomach's sort of contracted with whatever it is. And we're just breathing into the chest, you see. So they feel the rising and falling in the chest, which is fine, you know. Hopefully by the end of the retreat it does drop to a more natural breath. So you might find that when you're getting tight, one little, nice little technique is to, as it were, be with the breath, the rising and falling. And then when it stops, just get that sense of opening out to catch the whole body, yet still centered on the breath. So you're just sort of pulling back. It's like you're zooming in and zooming out, that sort of... See, and that, that coming off the breath like that can often feel as though it stops you getting tight. Hmm? 
Some people feel that they are uh, controlling the breath. That's a, that's a very sort of regular thing. So if, you, if you're breathing, rising, falling, and you feel that actually, as you're saying rising, you're making it rise, and as you say falling, you're making it fall, then keep doing that, you see, rising, falling, but displace your attention, see, displace your attention onto the feeling of, of control. See? And it's making that obvious to yourself, that business of control, and just don't do anything, you see? And eventually you'll see it'll just drop away and the breath will just breathe. And with it, there'll, there'll probably go some, mm, some emotional thing around breath. Yeah? You can't always say what it is, you see. That's another thing. You mustn't guess at what at any tension that's in the body. You know, sometimes you get tension in, in the stomach, you see. And intuitively, you might be right. You might be anxiety, see. But often the self feels very comforted when it knows what it is. It doesn't like to be in a place of don't know. Huh? So you feel a bit like, oh, that's anxiety. It was when my mother hit me on the head with a cat. I remember that. It was a bloody thing. <laughs> See? So forget all that rubbish. See, stay with the sensation. There is tightness. That's enough. Hmm? And if the tightness goes, you can, you can rejoice because something's, something's, been, something's been got rid of through the body as a feeling. You don't have to know what it is. This is the magic of the system. Huh? You might suffer lots of headaches and headaches and headaches in your meditation, backache, neckache, noseache, the whole damn thing. And when it's gone, you haven't a clue why you had all this stuff. All you know is gone, you see. So something's left the system. It's decided to go through the body because it's been suppressed that way. That's my own personal, uh, I don't know whether it's the way that they use it in in psychoanalysis and all that, but when you suppress something, you can still almost contact the emotional value of it. So if you suppress fear, when it finally comes out, you experience it as fear. But if it's been deeply suppressed, it goes into the body, and then it finds its way out through the body, and that's when you get these uh, psychosomatic problems. See, And uh, it's very difficult to get it back up through into the mind again as an actual felt state and of course it doesn't matter see once it's gone it's gone noting you see um, one of the big problems we have is to shut down the thinking mind it's extraordinarily difficult for us just consider a word, you see. A word in itself is just a sound, isn't it? I mean, if you keep saying banana often enough, it, it loses its meaning. You know, banana, banana, it's just, it's just a sound. But what it does is it holds our experience. So when you say banana, see, it immediately comes to mind all the history you've had with bananas. Huh? And you know what a good banana is and a bad banana. Now, when you see a banana and you say to yourself, oh, it's a banana, immediately you've categorized it. It's either a good banana or a bad banana. See? And when you taste it, you think, well, that's a, that's a fairly good banana. It's a, an awful banana. See? So already you're, you're judging this banana in relationship to all these other bananas. This poor banana just wants to be a banana, for heaven's sake. 
And you never really taste that banana. It's always colored. It's always distorted by your past experience. Now, how are you going to taste that banana as it is in itself without any of that history? How can you do that? Now, when you're doing that meditation on eating, that's exactly what you're doing, you see. You're putting your attention directly on the sense base of the tongue. And in doing so, you're cutting out thought. You're cutting out the word banana. And you're just tasting this. Uh, And in that way, you're communicating with this banana in a direct way, as as it would want you to taste it. Yeah? It's the same with uh, anything you take in life. It's the same with people. As soon as you hear of a friend, John, Mary, it, it encapsulates that person. And it's as though you don't see the rest of it that other people can see. It's, you just see the relationship you've had with that person. It's not possible to get the completely rounded person because whatever they're offering you is what, they want to offer you, and what you're prepared to receive. So we never know anybody in their totality, and in fact, I suppose we don't know ourselves like that. So these words are constantly distorting our experience by placing it in history, and with it there comes judgment, a judgmental mind. It's just there in the word. Now, Vipassana is to see things as they really are before we conceptualize it, before we distort it by past history. That's why it's so important to close down the thinking mind. Now, most techniques, uh, you know, most techniques are about that, are about getting to a point where there's no thought. In the Mahasi technique, um, it's done through a simple word. That's the beginning of it. So remember that Mahasi himself was an intellectual. He was a scholar. And he headed the Sixth Council. Took the very important position of the questioner. So he's the one, as, as, the, as the scriptures were related, he's the one who put the questions concerning the scriptures. Um, therefore he held a very high position in, that, in, in the scholastic world as being somebody who... Um, had great understanding, intellectual understanding. How is he going to get beyond the intellectual understanding into this pure observation? See, So it's there in the scripture, it's there in the Satipatthana discourse, how to establish right awareness. The Buddha said he knows that it's a long breath. The meditator knows it's a short breath. So you can almost translate that as that reflection right, on what's actually happening. So the word is always a reflection. So as you're uh, sitting, say, with the breath, and you say rising, 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 actually what's speaking, what's actually happening, rather, is there's a moment of, of direct experience, and then there's a moment of reflection with the word. Okay? And what this word is doing is holding or containing your thinking process, and it's reducing it to a concrete word. Rising, falling, hearing, Touching, moving, they're all very basic uh, words that are to do with action, to do with feeling. Right? They're, not, they're not abstract words. 
And as you're doing that, you see, and your attention is not on the word. It sometimes feels like that if this is the first time you've done this. The word seems right up front. And in fact, if anything, you're just noting that you're noting the word. So this tells us how locked we are in the intellect. We can't get that pure intelligence out of its relationship of identity with thought. I think, therefore I am. Yeah? So by using the word rising, falling, yeah, that keeps the intellect occupied, and I'm shifting my attention to feeling. I want to feel the breath. So as I begin to feel the breath, this word, as it were, begins to recede, and it becomes like a little push from the intellect, pushing your attention towards the object. It's like somebody were to say, uh, like once when I was in Sri Lanka, when I first got there, uh, there was this bark, which I'd never really heard before. And so I said, what is that? And the person with me said, that's a monkey's. I said, a monkey? He said, yeah, look, there they are. And they pointed up at this train. For the life of me, I couldn't see these monkeys. And I kept saying, where are they, see? Like, looking, looking. Like, where are these monkeys? <laughs> and of course, suddenly I saw them. They're huge. How could I, how could I not see these monkeys? So, you know, the huge things. Barking at me, if I'm saying. And it was just that process of looking. So I couldn't see the monkey for the trees. See? And it was just looking, 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 you know. And I got really good at it. I could actually see a green parrot in a tree. That takes a bit of looking. So this word is actually pushing your attention towards the object, you see, and that's its purpose. Now, as it's doing that, you are feeling the sensation of the breath. You're feeling an emotion that's come up. So it might be some irritation, might be some depression, uh, could be anything. Huh? And you're feeling it, you're actually getting into it, you're actually getting close to it, the, the actual texture, the texture of the feeling. And as, you, as you're drawn by your interest, see, this is not a forced concentration. Eh? You're not knitting your brows and sort of beating yourself. You're just drawn to it by a sense of interest of what is it. Hmm? So as you're saying rising, falling, see, and you're feeling it, feeling it, feeling it, it's as though time is collapsing. It's collapsing more and more into an immediacy. And at the point of immediacy, the word stops. It has to stop because there isn't, there isn't that time to reflect. At that point, we can say we're doing pure vipassana. Hmm? So there's no reflection. Uh, there's no sense of self. There's no sense of time. Hmm? And you get this often in life in other areas. For instance, uh, you can go in to see a DVD or a film or something, and you go in there with uh, the express intention to enjoy the film and then you collapse into it don't you you disappear two three hours later you come out and say oh that's a good film see, well, where have you been see it's not as though during the film you were reflecting on yourself if you were studying the film then you would be doing and if you were studying the acting the directing the, the way the way the the scenery is done all that sort of stuff then there would be that process of self-reflection and reflecting on what you were experiencing but normally we just go in and enjoy the film and during that time, there's no self. So why isn't that Nibbana? It's a good question. Huh? <laughs> it's because we've gone in there with the intention of indulging our, our love of films. So it's been great, but unfortunately, we've now got a greater attachment to DVDs. 
And if we can't get the next DVD, it's very painful, it's frustrating. So this noting, this noting technique is just to keep the attention steady, but your attention is actually guiding towards the object, the feeling, the sensation in the body. In the Buddha's language, there's only Vedana. It's translated as feeling. This Vedana is of five types. Physical, unpleasant, pleasant feelings. Mental, pleasant, unpleasant feelings. And neutral feelings, which actually split into physical and mental. But he divides it into these five. Now, what does that mean? It means that sometimes I have pain in the body, physical pain, like my knees. Sometimes I have a very pleasant feeling in the body, like when I, or even when I'm eating, yeah? some pleasant physical sensation. When, when an emotion or mood comes up, it can be extraordinarily pleasant, peacefulness, love. Yeah? It can be horrible, it can be depression, anxiety. According to the Buddha, we actually go beyond the concept of it and just feel the feeling. Now, his construction in that is... Uh, slightly strange to us but in the Pali language it's to feel feelings in feeling to, f- to experience the body in the body to experience mental states in mental states hmm? and to experience the teaching in the teaching I mean there he's talking about specific things that we come to another time like the five hindrances so this construction to actually feel feelings in feelings it's a direct contact, a direct experience of the feelings. Now, I was just saying to Penny, actually, just before that, I'm often surprised uh, when meditators who've done this a very long time uh, have been very good on observing things as impermanent, huh? observing things as not me, not mine, that sort of distance that you can get from something. But um, somehow they failed to get into the dukkha, which means the suffering element. And it feels to me as though that they've been suppressing that part of it. Because when something comes up, you see, and you distance yourself from it, and you say, oh, it's all arising and passing away, it's all arising and passing away, you're very subtly suppressing it, you're pushing it away from yourself. And it gives you a certain relief because you've, you've, you've put yourself into a position of not being bothered by it. You, you found this wonderful aloof state, not me, not mine. But you're not actually dealt with the suffering itself. Now here's the Buddha saying, when you have a feeling, go into the feeling. Feel it. When you have an emotional state, go into the emotional state. Feel it. Now, these words, supposing I, I now had some, some form of, I don't know, depression or something. I'm saying depression, depression, you see. And this word is meant to push me towards the feeling, to go into it. Uh, the Mahasi's own image was throwing a stone at a wall. Yeah? Uh, it gives you that impression of actually pushing the attention into it. Be careful about this word pushing. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not aggressive. Yeah, just gently pushing. <laughs> and as you get close to it, and as you're driven by your interest, see, that's the big driving thing, the interest of wanting to know hmm, what, is, what is depression before you give it a name. What is a pain before you give it a name? 
What is anxiety before you've attached a history to it? See, what actually is it? See? And it's driving the attention into that. When I say the attention, I mean that which knows, that which feels, that which understands. It's, your, it's our intuitive intelligence, sati panya. Panya means intuitive intel, intelligence, and sati means awareness. Sati is that uh, very open awareness, the receiving without blocks, without, without filtering. Yeah? And it has within it that quality of looking, that quality of knowing. And every so often there's a seeing. See? That's why we call it insight, so direct seeing. That seeing, is, that, that seeing can also be a direct feeling, a direct knowing of something. So, as we do that, this time collapses, you see. Now, the difference between that sort of absorption and absorbing in a DVD is your attitude. It's your intention. When you go and watch, when we watch a DVD or a film or something, our intention is to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> Why not? But when we're doing this practice, our intention is to understand, to know. See? And because of that intention, there comes the insight. Because of that intention, there comes the insight which liberates us from a misunderstanding. Now, you take the knee, for instance. Everybody got these exploding knees after a while, you know? So you've got this soreness in the knee. By the way, if the, if the knee gets sore as opposed to painful, it's always best to sit. Sit and wait for the soreness to go, yeah? And that's about the only part of the body, really, apart from the back with wrong posture that, can, that you can do damage to in meditation, hmm? just by forcing that joint, because it doesn't, frankly doesn't bend that way. It's the tendons at the top of your legs that have to go, yeah? So there's the pain in your knee, right? Okay. So you use the noting word pain because that's approximate to what you're experiencing. And as you do that, your attention moves towards the pain. You're feeling the pain. Now, as soon as you feel the pain, you feel that uh, resistance to it. So you note that resistance. You go into the pain, 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 and then when you're steady on the pain, as it were, you enter the pain. You deconstruct the pain. You're trying to find out what is pain made of. When you go into the pain, you may find just tightness and fieriness. See? Now, as soon as you move into the pain and, and you're noting fieriness or pressure, something like that, you've lost the concept of pain. Yeah? When pain comes into the mind, you describe something as painful, it immediately becomes suffering. But when you've gone beyond the idea of pain into the Vedana, into the actual feeling as it is in the knee, as the knee would have you experience it, all there is is tightness and, and heat. See? So that way we're actually using the noting word to force ourselves, small f, eh, no big pressure, into a direct experience of sensation. And we can see by that what the mind is doing. The mind always conceptualizes, which means it puts it into a concept. It puts it into a, a context. And that context brings a certain relationship to it. Brings a certain past relationship to it. See? So as soon as, you, as soon as we have any pain, headache or anything, the, the relationship says, get out of this, do something about it. You know, get the Panadol. But here we're actually beginning to see that that's all to do with the mind. It's the mind which creates pain. All the body does is create sensations. Now, that's what the word is doing all the time. And you can do the same thing with an emotion. See? 
Now, when it comes to something like pain in the knee, of course, uh, one has to listen to the body. So when the, when the body is giving us, sent, giving us signals, then it's intelligent to think, well, it's, it's hurting, so there must be something wrong. <laughs> but when it's the heart, when it's, when it's the heart with its emotions and moods, then we're also listening to it. We're also opening up to it. And it's by doing that that it begins to expend its turbulent energy. So there's your therapy. Hmm? But we get there not by, not by the desire to, to get rid of uh, an emotional state. You get to that point of pure therapy by shifting your attention to trying to understand what it is. And that's what the word is doing. It's making, you, it's making you let go of all your preconceptions, of all your ideas, of how it ought to be, should be, if only, and you're just driving your attention to experience um, these emotional states, mental states, physical states, as they are, not as we would want them to be. So that's the importance of the noting. And how, how long should you do it? All the time. As soon as you get up to when you fall asleep, you shouldn't stop. It should become just habitual. And as I mentioned this morning, hopefully after one or two days, you're always doing the same thing at the same time. So there's never any choice. You don't give yourself any choices. The mind loves choices. You know, shall I have a biscuit or shall I not have a biscuit? Tell with it, there's a biscuit there, go and have it. See? <laughs> stop thinking about whether you're going to have one or not. You're going to have a cup of tea, not a cup of tea. Stop. See? Just say, right, I'm going to have a cup of tea in the morning and a cup of tea at lunch and a cup of tea. In the... And that's it. See? Be truthful. How many of you went for a cup of tea in that break? Put your hands up. Very uh, good, actually. There's only one or two. <laughs> so water's fine. But, I mean, you know, just try and, try and get this rhythm of something very habitual because by taking away any sense of choice... You just do what's given, and then your whole effort can be just on this process of investigation, you see. See, the self feels trapped if you don't give it a choice. That's good. You want to trap the self. You want to get it in a box and beat the hell out of it. Um. So if you're finding the notive in, intrusive, you see, just keep working at it, displacing your attention on feeling and sensation. And eventually you'll see it recedes. It becomes quite a help, you know. Then there's the walking. See, when do you go slow and when not to go slow. So normally speaking, it's sort of good practice before you start a walking session to do something quite rapid and just get a bit of energy going, 5, 10, 15 minutes, yeah? Then when you slow down, really try to get as slow as you can. And that, a lot of that will depend on your balance. And then when you hear the bell, come in at a speed that you don't lose that, but you don't have to come in so slow. Right? So you have to modulate your speed. So when you're in a queue, you know, just be aware of the fact that uh, people behind you are quite hungry and want to get to the food. Yeah? It's been known for the Hazi meditators to be stabbed. <laughs> And the use of toilets too, you see. You get, people go berserk if they can't get in sometimes. 
But whatever you can, like most of you now got your own room. So now, whatever you do in your room, the opening and closing of doors, whatever you're doing there, really try and slow down. Right? Really try and slow down. And it's very difficult because you haven't got the support of people around you. You know, it's difficult when you're on your own. But you can go really slow. I mean, uh, the Mahasi talked about a snail. I remember in my own practice with uh, Ujanaka, the, uh, we were meditating up there, which would have been, normally speaking, it would take you about a couple of minutes to go from there to the dining room. Well, it would be three quarters of an hour before you get there. You, you felt hungry by the time you got, you got to there. And mealtime, see, he'd come along and say, slower, slower, you're already taking an hour over your meal. So it's that uh, going slow really, really cools the whole system. And because the body and mind are dependent on each other, the slower you go, the slower the mind gets. You really begin to see these intentions arise. You really begin to see a sound. You can get to a point where you're actually at the eardrum and you don't hear a sound. You feel the actual tapping of the air on your eardrum. You can get down to that. You can see how the mind draws it in to the mind base and it actually begins to recognize it as a bell. Huh? And then it begins to recognize what it's for, hmm? calling you into meditation. And then the eye comes in. It comes in very late. Huh? You don't start off with the eye. That comes in late in the whole psychological process. And that, you get to that sort of level by completely cooling the whole system down. By really going very slow. I mean, the Mahasi talked about a snail, you know, or a blind person uh, trying to, f to, to work their way out of a room that they didn't know. See? So it's for you to experiment. It's for you to, to, to actually do it and find out whether, in fact, it really is, it really is helpful. Now, if you're cool, if you're, if you're all right, then keep, the, keep, keep doing this very slow walk meditation and try and build up your, your stamina for it, you know. Um, often, we just, often we just go out there and do 10 minutes, then we get a bit fed up and we come back. <laughs> but you actually want to do it from the moment the session ends and you're walking at a, a fairly slow pace to where you're doing. You might do some running up and down or just walking fast up and down, but then try and do, you know, a real stretch, 10 you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, so the whole time. And that's how you build up this stamina. Now, this stamina is not just a physical thing. It's a stamina of keeping your attention steady. It's the muscle. Right? It's just like a muscle. And the more you practice it, the more you put energy in it, you'll see the attention grows. It's very extraordinarily sharp. And uh, remember, the balance between sitting and walking is, is important because you can't sit forever. The body actually needs to move, huh? So the walking is a nice balance to it. And, it, and it, because the walking is such a um, gross activity as opposed to the breath, it's much easier to keep your attention there. But it's still neutral. Now, concentration which is built upon uh, neutral sensation is much stronger than concentration on loud sensation. It's easy to have concentration if, you, if, if your knee's in the process of, of, of collapsing. That's very, that's very easy. The more, I mean, pain, pain has the one blessing of making you very concentrated. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's not, it's not really um, a quality within, within the mind itself. It's driven by pain. So when the pain goes, the mind wanders. 
So walking meditation is, is that time when you can really build up a sense of moment-to-moment concentration, moment-to-moment awareness. Hmm? So consider it important. I mean, in the Mahasi system, it's always one hour, one hour, one hour, one hour. See, it's always split like that. Eating, well, I think I've said enough about uh, eating. But uh, <clears throat> it's good that um, you really use that because, as I say, that's the only real time of the day, probably, that you experience pleasure. So, you know, make a meal of it. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, I mean. Really use it to investigate. And both in the eating and the walking, try to distinguish between an intention and an act. So what separates them is an act of will. So as long as an intention remains, so long as it remains as an intention, it's just a potential, see, intending to walk, intending to eat. So it's a, it's a thought laced with desire, hmm? can be a good desire, don't have to be always a bad desire, but it's laced with desire, but nothing's happened. See? And then when you empower it and you start eating, you start walking. So there's a magic moment there. Just see if you can catch that and recognize that there are two parts to the to the process within our minds. There's always the intention and then there's the act. Now there was a, an article that um through um in in, in, these scientists discovered that we make decisions before we actually know. I think, have you seen that? Yeah. Now you see, uh, that for them was a big discovery. But anybody who knows mindfulness and the lack of it knows exactly that's how people behave. That's how we behave when we're mindless. The decision's already made as a habit and we suddenly become aware of it and we're having a cup of tea. And we think we've made a decision to have a cup of tea. But actually, it's driven way back, a few couple of seconds even, by old habits. Now, the whole point of mindfulness is that you become aware of that before it grabs you. So that you're actually awake enough in daily life to see, ooh, you know, desire for a cup of tea. See, at that point, you've got a choice. You haven't got a choice once it's coming up you from behind. It's like, a, it's like, a, it's like an animal. It's, it's got you. It just grabs you and before you know it. You, your head's in the teacup. That should become more and more plain the slower you go. See, that should become more and more plain. So what's the role of intention? What is the will? We'll come to that a bit more in detail throughout the week. So what are you doing now? The next one is unpleasant, pleasant physical sensations. So what do you do, you see? What are you noting? So it's important for the teacher to know what you're doing because it's in your description of it that... Um, that we know that you're doing the practice properly. That's all. See? Thinking. See, what do you do with an obsessive mind when it keeps going on and on and on? When a tune goes round and round and round? What do you do? What do you do with a judging mind if you set yourself up against it? You know, which is constantly judging you, you know. And you're no good and all that sort of rubbish. How do you deal with that? Wandering mind. Yeah. 
So remember, whenever the mind goes off, it's developing something. That's how an emotional state develops, through the mind, through stories, through art. Hmm? That's what it is, the imagination, isn't it? It might be poor art, but it's still art. And when you note it, and you come back into the body, so you don't go back to the breath. Hmm? You come back into the body, it says, try and find what's the emotion, what's the mental state that's empowering that. Because it wants to find a way of uh, indulging itself. So when you're angry, you have angry thoughts. So you want to get back into the body and feel it, you see. If there's nothing there to be felt, fine, just go back to the breath. If you keep doing that, eventually the mental state that's empowering those thoughts, the actual emotional state, does become more and more apparent. But often, uh, we, often it's sort of it's been lifted up into the head so that people feel emotions in their head. Yeah? They're not so much in contact with the heart. I think it's more of a male thing than. <laughs> so if, that, if, you, if, you're, if you're roaring in your head with this anger, see, like you were just there at the point of enlightenment, somebody sneezed. See? Whoa, see, bursting your head was full of fire. And then you say, oh, stop, see, fire, fire, so anger, anger, come into the body, and it's completely cool. See, and you think, hold on, up here I'm burning away, and down here I'm... <laughs> so just note that, you see, but keep coming back into the body. Eventually, it'll, it'll come out through the body. Hmm? Daily activities. So now, you know, you'll hear me constantly encouraging you not to lose your mindfulness in daily activities because that's where we tend to drop, it's where we tend to lose our commitment to moment-to-moment mindfulness. See? So, you know, get rid of that sense of hierarchy, sitting more important than walking and so on and so forth. From now on, whatever you're doing has to be done deliberately. You see? So there should be that moment of stopping, the intending to do, and then you do it. See? And... Um, we should get that feeling after a while of being here most of the day. You know, that we haven't been in Acapulco or somewhere. Are you stopping and noting the intention before you do something? So you try and do that as often as you can. You'll see it'll keep stopping you. Can you vary your pace according to circumstance without losing mindfulness? See, as soon as you put a bit of energy in, you find yourself rushing. See? And when the rushing comes, you find yourself rushing, what do you do? What do you do to not to be hijacked by it? Are you aware of what makes you lose mindfulness? What is it that makes you lose it? Then there's that quiet abiding that we do, abiding in the present moment. See, the more you can develop that, uh, the more you, we create that base of um, very bright awareness, very bright, open awareness, from which the investigation begins. And that you can take directly into daily life. See? Anytime you just stop. Huh? It's a powerful little word, stop. Stop. See? Just say it to yourself now, just... Stop. Yeah, for a moment it stops, doesn't it? No. See? <laughs> and work period. 
Now, in the work period, you see, you ought to be going at a normal, natural pace because one of the uh, misunderstandings through this particular technique is that if you're not doing something slow, it can't be mindful, which is ridiculous. Okay? Um, people who get into that sort of misunderstanding I often advise to go up to Throstle Hall Abbey, the Zen place, where they sort of beat you around at an enormous speed. <laughs> and if you lose mindfulness, you trip up or you cut, you stab yourself or something. So it's nothing to do with speed, you see. But what happens to us, isn't it, is that as soon as you begin to put a bit of speed into it, this, this feeling of rush comes in, see. So what do we do, you know? What do we do when that rush comes in? So all these things, um, if you can reflect on them. So this sheet of paper, remember, is also for you, for you to reflect upon. So you know, keep it by your seat. I'll do a little check here, make sure I've done everything. That covers it, really. So, uh, just to sum up, all these techniques that you come across are concerned with liberating this intuitive intelligence from its confusion with thought, emotions, and physical sensations. That's all it is. That's all it is. And depending on the sort of person you are, the confusion will either be more emotional than, in, than intellectual or more intellectual than emotional. And all the time we're sort of stepping back, stepping back, stepping back to get that position of aloofness. See? The objective observer, the objective feeler. But remember that once you've attained that state, you don't stay there. You then go towards the object to investigate. Otherwise, that state can very easily become a very subtle suppression. You can see everything, you can feel everything, but there's a sort of slight distance. So that's your primary, that's your first position of the objective observer, the objective feeler, the objective seer, the objective knower. And once you're there, you go towards the object. There's a few questions that have come up. Um, See, it says, um, you often mention hearing, hearing, but not looking, looking, or seeing, seeing. The visual sense is with us all the time, a constant source of delight and distraction. For instance, it's hard to imagine walking outside without being struck by the beauty of the garden. And in a closed eye sitting, uh, I tend to find a kaleidoscopic, a kaleidoscope of patterns, colours, subliminal images. Noting a visual object is tricky in all sorts of ways. Looking, looking seems to be stating the obvious in everyday waking life. Isn't just looking uh, like your three-year-old child valid also? Uh, not to fabricate. No need to fabricate the action of a separate observer. Um, indeed, uh, the visual sense is... Uh, at the forefront in our culture, we're very visual. Um, 
But whatever comes into our sight, we need to note what we're doing. So the, the process of saying looking, looking is to stop this intellect coming in to tell us what we're looking at so that we can directly see what it is that we are, what we're looking at. So you, yesterday I gave you that little exercise of looking into the palm of your hand to see how perception works. So when you're out in the garden, if, uh, if you want to see a flower as the flower wants to be seen, uh, I mean, it's a bit dodgy this, uh, is to approach the flower and just keep your eye on the flower repeating the word looking. See, And as you do that, it's as though... The, it's as though you're entering the flower. It's as though you're actually seeing the flower with the fullness of your own sense base. I said, you know, as the flower wants to be seen, well, the fact of the matter is that we can only see what our sense base will give us. That's why we create our own worlds. We'll never know what the flower is in itself or how, it sees, how it's seen by anybody else. But to get that clarity of at least for the, for the sense base to contact this flower without categorizing it, see, without judging it. See? You have to keep looking at it, and the word looking is stopping all that mental stuff. And when you're locked onto the flower, you know, you might be concentrated enough to let go of the noting. And then there's that, there's that direct contact with it, you see. If sadness arises and you cry, are you indulging it? It's a, a bit of a dodgy on that. The, the um, emotions can be so strong that they have to have some sort of physical ex, uh, ex, um, expression. And one of the regular ones is crying, crying over grief, over sorrow, remorse. There's lots of reasons why we can find ourselves crying. So it's a case of letting the heart express itself, that's all. But... Um, Crying can also have a certain pleasantness about it. And you have to be slightly careful not to indulge in melancholia. There's a, there's a, there's a certain niceness about it. But generally speaking, um, yeah, one, one cries. One, let, one lets the tears flow, you see. And if it goes on and on and on, three years later you're still crying over the same thing, then you know, something, something's, something's not quite right. Yeah? Even, even a heavy grief should have worked itself out of the system in that sort of heavy way, they say anyway, nine months, nine months, ten months, or else you're holding on to something. Yeah. I remember this elderly lady came to me still grieving at the loss of her son. And what had happened there was that she was equating her grief with love. So every time she stopped grieving, she stopped loving her son. So she had to keep grieving. Once she'd made that sort of insight, that grief was simply the expression of attachment and that love was allowing her son to get on with it. Yeah, he came back, came back a week later and said it all gone, just like that. See? So be careful about crying. <clears throat> if nothing lasts in this world... Oh, that's something else, sorry. Uh, that was more of a question, uh, as a general question. Um, what do you do when you come across lots of anger? Focusing in on it doesn't seem to make it pass or transmute. No, of course it doesn't. See, when anger comes, you're not there trying to make it transmute or pass. You're there to let it arise. Now, it's always a big shock to us how much of this anger is down there. It always comes as a surprise that when we lift the lid off the dustbin, there's an amount of stink that you never thought was in there. <laughs> 
So there's an enormous amount. In, there's an enormous amount of this stuff in the psyche. I mean, you know, if you if you want to take, uh, you know, the Buddhist uh, understanding, this has been going on for a lifetime, not just since we were born. So there's a whole there's a whole mechanism down there which produces anger, a conditioning. So when you open up to it, don't be surprised. It can take quite a while for it to burn out. I remember once in my own practice, um, this acid burn turned up. It started off with the dream sequence. Started off with, in Technicolor, these dogs pull, ripping this body apart. That doesn't tell you anything about me. And, this <laughs> and uh, all day long, all day long, I hardly had a break, this enormous acid burn of anger inside me. And luckily I was in a room by myself, you see. So I, I just stayed in this, I stayed with this over six weeks. And over six weeks the dreams got better and better. And the last one was this nasty little kitten bit me toe. <laughs> that was the last I always remember it and at that point all that acid burn had disappeared see now what was it about why was it there you know who knows see uh, is it Vipassana if one can sustain concentration on the breath without other thoughts mostly or is this too focused on the breath no you see <clears throat> there comes a time when everything is really relaxed, when, when we enter into a space where everything's very peaceful, um, where the mind really is very still, where the body's become very calm. And there is only the breath. There is only the breath. That's what you do. You go straight into the breath because all these factors, not self, impermanence, suffering, it's all right there in the breath. You don't have to move off the breath. Hmm? And insights can be had right there of a deep nature. So when it's like that, you know, keep, keep going into the breath. Get lost in the breath. Become completely focused on it. Uh, could you share some details on the Mahasi method and how it's in, in relation to other Theravada teachings? Well, as I say, when it comes to methodology, there are, there are as many as there are uh, teachers who start a tradition. So there's lots of them, really. Uh, this is this one and the Ubakin tradition taught by uh, Goenka. Some of you, some of you know Goenka. Um, are the two main ones as specific, uh, what you might call quite specific uh, techniques covering the whole day, as it were. You know, there are other techniques which are more limited to observing. Mental states. I remember I had one which was very good. It was observing dukkha, just suffering. And the instructions very simple. You sat till it hurt, till it really hurt, till it really, really hurt. And when you couldn't take it anymore, you moved. And as you moved, you noticed that, you know, the pain went and the mental state cooled off. And then you did walking until it hurt. Really, really hurt. And then you did some lying meditation. And you stayed there till it, if you believe it, it really hurts. <laughs> Even lying meditation. You didn't eat till it really, really hurt. But, it was <laughs> but that was the instruction. And she had developed this technique around just that quality of dukkha, of suffering, you see. That was her insight. She's very good, actually. So I think that... Uh, Oh, there's one little one here. Can you please say something about the place of not being happy but not being sad either? It's a very strange and unfamiliar place and I'm not sure I like it. 
for heaven's sake, it sounds like equanimity to me. I'd, <laughs> I'd hang on for dear life. <laughs> I wouldn't, wouldn't let go of that. Yeah. But remember, we always associate happiness with a, with a mental state, with some emotional state. See, so when everything cools down and it becomes sort of flat, inverted commas, uh, it sort of becomes insipid, you know. But in fact, that's what we're supposed to be developing. We're developing a, a taste for the neutral, a taste for peace. I mean, what's peace, you know? I can only hope my words have been of some assistance, that you will find the Mahasi uh, techniques um, perfectly adequate uh, to arrive at the gates of Nibbana, that you will work uh, with tremendous effort and commitment and achieve that goal sooner rather than later.